Welcome to the South Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at South Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you're encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. If you're visiting, my name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors here. And in Lent, it's a season that I'll explain in just a while. Uh, Even the liturgy, the things that we do, they get to fast. It gets to fast too. And so we do things just a little bit different. You're supposed to feel some of that change. And so usually at this point, we do a moment where we say, go and say hi to somebody. You might call it passing the peace. You might call it meet and greet. We call it shake and howdy. But... um, I recognize for some of you, it's like, wow, we we cut that? I love that. Um, The introverts are happy, but the extroverts, you're supposed to feel that sense of tension. Something's supposed to be missing, and then we get to Resurrection Sunday at Easter, and we all get to do that again, and and it teaches us something about the nature of Lent. And, And instead, we have this more formal standing and listening to Scripture, and, and the response at the end of this time is, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And then we get to say, do we think that's accurate? <laughs> we get to feel some of the ways that that might feel deeply uncomfortable, some of the ways the Scripture might be comforting, some of the ways it might not be. So here we go. Jeremiah chapter 2, the word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, or you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me, that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through the land of deserts and ravines, a land of drought and utter darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Cyprus and look, send to Cedar, and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. You have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You're free to take a seat. 
So for those of you that weren't with us last week, we began this Lenten series on Jeremiah. This is the picture that we have of Jeremiah by Rembrandt Van Rijn, taking a kind of contemplative lament over the city of Jerusalem. And so this season is one where we get to talk about some of the things that might create a little bit of angst in it. Some of the subjects, some of the, the topics that we, we don't usually cover in the rest of the church calendar. Now. On Thursday, we have a podcast. Aaron and I get to sit and talk about some of the things that came up out of the sermon, some of the things that maybe got cut on the cutting floor as you're trying to bring content down to around 30 to 40 minutes. And so if you'd like to listen, we would love to hear your questions about today's sermon and just try and maybe wrestle with them a little bit more as a community. So grab the phone number, send us some messages. We would love to hear them. Before we get to Jeremiah, let's just make sure we're all on the same page with Lent. If you grew up Catholic, you may have have more of a sense of Lent was a season that we did. I grew up Pentecostal, which meant Lent was a season that we didn't. I remember one moment where I said to my mom, I'm going to fast chocolate during Lent. And she said, no, you're not. Uh, Here we eat the chocolate. Like here we don't say no to it. Here fasting is not an option. We're Pentecostal. We're always upbeat. Everything is always good. And so Lent to me was not a thing we did. But for nearly 2,000 years, people have adopted seasons in what we call the church calendar that help us understand who God is and how he's working in the world. So Advent is the beginning of this calendar. It's the season that leads us up to Christmas. It's this moment where we get to reflect before Christmas Day and celebrate what it is for God to be with us. Then we move to a season, Lent and Easter, where we recognize Jesus coming and his death for us, and we remember that God is for us. And then Easter and Pentecost, which leads us up at South to this moment where we do baptisms together and we celebrate the idea that for as long as it has been around, the Christian faith has not just said God is near you or around you, he is dwelling within you. And that is a huge deal. And then beyond that, we move into ordinary time, this idea that God works through us. So if Lent is new to you, here are three words for you that maybe help you reflect when you, whenever you hear the word Lent. When you hear Lent, think fast, lament, and repent. Three words that the modern church doesn't really love, that we don't necessarily do well. Fasting is something that we're maybe uncomfortable with. We, we rarely enter into. Maybe if someone's especially sick or something like that, we say we're going to come together and fast. But it's, it's a rarity for us to do that. For the early church, it, it was a weekly practice. Lament is this, this, this kind of angst and sorrow for the way that the world is. Maybe it's deeply personal. Maybe it's broader than that. But, but we don't know how to do that either. Other nations lament, but, but we don't do it. It's not in our radar. And then repentance is this, this, yes, confession that something is wrong, but also a turning again to walk towards God. And I would say that repentance idea is deeply located within this week's message. There is a call to face again towards God and, and step back towards him. A question that will hopefully ground us. When I wake up on Resurrection Sunday morning, How will I be different? What am I preparing for? As we, over this season, step, 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 step towards Resurrection Sunday, what changes? How do we reflect on it differently? And how might we wake up on that morning with a new appreciation for this idea that God is for us, has done things for us? 
every Lent, I try and hold this as a mantra, I get out of Easter what I put into Lent. It's a slower season, sometimes a difficult season, but when I get to the other side of it and I get to embrace the, the newness of Easter, what will good things happen? And, and so being the brave community of faith that we are, or weird community of faith, whichever you wanna take, uh, we decided to do Jeremiah for Lent. It was a thing that I regretted after a while and now I've come to be really excited about, uh, about again. But it is a challenging, difficult book. Uh, one of the commentaries that I read as I, as I was preparing for this by Kathleen O'Connor, she talks about how she invited her mother to read Jeremiah as she was writing a commentary about it. And her mother came back to her with this quote about the book of Jeremiah. Who can read this book? Who can read this book? It's a deeply challenging book for a couple of reasons. Some of the words are hard. We'll hear things that we might say, I don't want to hear that. I don't want God to have said that. I don't want that to be. And then it's just thrown together, it feels at times, with all of these different elements. It goes from narrative to poetry. It goes from one decade to another decade in the speed of a chapter. Sometimes it feels the king is one person. The next moment, it seems like a different person is king. And well left trying to catch up with this author has, who has so much on his mind and so much to tell us. But perhaps the book is that way for a reason. Perhaps it's that way because these are a people that have been through trauma. These are a people that have been through incredibly, incredible difficulty. These are people that have been through struggle. And when you try to recollect and record and write down struggle, what do you get? you get some of that feeling of angst, confusion, of heartache, and all of that comes across in the book. As, as we started last week, this is what Jeremiah said in chapter one. The Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Old worlds are ending in Jeremiah, new worlds are beginning. So much is changing and Jeremiah is there kind of as a middleman. Sometimes he seems like he's on God's side. Sometimes he seems like he's on the people's side. There'll be moments where he'll say, God, how can you do this to your people? Kind of stands in that gap. There's other moments where he says, God has been hurt by you people, wounded, damaged by you people. There, there is this way that he kind of sits in the middle of that. And so there's this question that I think is good to kind of clear the ground a little bit. Considering the book is so old, Considering it covers all that different like history, considering it's from a world that isn't as, and it's difficult and confusing, how is Jeremiah relevant to you and I? Why read it? Why study it? Does it make a difference? Here's why I think it does. Jeremiah's located, as I said, in this time of incredible change. John Bright, the historian, says this, seldom has a nation, Judah, experienced so many, experienced so many dramatically sudden reversals of fortune in so relatively short a time. Everything keeps changing. People are constantly having to stay on their toes. It's hard to keep up as a society. And maybe we feel like that a little bit today. 
It made me think of Lyndon B. Johnson. In a speech, he said this, nothing so challenges the American spirit as tackling the biggest job on earth. Americans are stimulated by the big job, the Panama Canal, the Boulder Dam, the Grand. Still struggling with this word. What is this word? Coolie? 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 It's your word, people. I don't know what it is. Uh, catch me up. Help a British guy out. The Lower Colorado River developments, the tallest building in the world, the mightiest battleship. There's something about the American spirit that gravitates towards those things. But what happens when they aren't there? What happens when something changes? Almost every commentator on Jeremiah takes the situation in this nation in 700 to 597 BC and equates it to this. It says this is a nation that's experiencing something like 9-11. There was something there that spoke of importance, of wealth, of significance, something that was supposed to be there forever. For us, it was maybe these towers. For Jerusalem, it was the temple. It was a sign that they were blessed, the sign that God was present amongst them. And soon, in Jeremiah's book, the temple will not be there anymore. And that's going to cause a ton of questioning and a ton of heartache. When you think about changes you might have experienced in your life, how has that made you feel? How have you seen God present in America? How have you questioned, is he still present? How have you processed some of those questions? Jeremiah and these people were processing questions just like that. And almost every commentator says, maybe we are today too. And to address all of those different things, Jeremiah brings a particular style of preaching to the people of Jerusalem. Jeremiah brings what you might call guerrilla theater to the streets of Jerusalem. Sometimes it's actually physical. As we get later into the book, he'll smash pottery and it's symbolic. He'll buy pieces of property and it's symbolic. He'll do all of these different things. Sometimes he'll just create images with his words, but every time he does, it's supposed to get somewhere down deep into who we are as human beings and say something to us about who God wants to be for us and with us. In some ways, his style of preaching reminds me of these guys. This is Ule and Abramovich. They're two people that are, they're two of the best known street theater people in the world. They, they bring visual aspects that are supposed to teach you something, supposed to have a point to take away. For 60 days, they lived with their two strands of hair or two long, whatever you call it, of hair tied together to represent sort of the way human beings rely on each other. They were supposed to get married on this, this ceremony after walking the Great Wall of China from opposite ends, and it took them eight years to organize and to do, and when they got to the middle, they just said, we don't feel this way anymore. They just split up and never spoke to each other again, at least for 22 years when they finally ended up together over a table at one of her presentations. They would do displays like this that's supposed to symbolize something of the risk of relationship, how it requires relying on one person, but there's a risk to both people involved. There's always a message, always something that's supposed to capture us. And there's something about that with Jeremiah too. He'll pull these images. It seems out of nowhere and they seem to get straight to the heart. They seem to grab us in this visceral way. Sometimes he'll be talking about one thing and he'll switch midstream and say, no, no, it's actually more like this. And that's what he does today. Today he'll start off by talking about something that we know 
that's familiar, perhaps too familiar, and then he'll switch to talking about something else that is also familiar, but more visceral than his first illustration. So this is where he starts. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 1 to 3, the word of the Lord came to me, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. He begins with this picture of young Love, I have found a picture for you two guys to just like ooh over. Um, and this is, this is Laura and I maybe 14 years ago, 14, 15, something like that. I can't, I can't do math while teaching at the same time. Uh, and I apologize, as a European, I apologize for the ill-fitting suit. It was the best men's warehouse could do. Um, but, but there is this picture of, of young love. It's the picture that Jeremiah offers us of God's relationship with this nation, Israel. This nation that is now, at this point in history, split into two nations. There has been Israel and there is Judah. One is slightly bigger, one is slightly smaller. One has been conquered and disappeared into nothing. Israel has been conquered by Assyria. And then the other one is Judah. He'll give us this picture of how God has loved them like people at the beginning of a relationship. And then he'll say that it's turned tragic. He'll take an image like that and say, no, it is gone bad and that is heartbreaking. Heartbreaking not to the people that have broken the relationship. Heartbreaking to the God who began the relationship. In chapter three, it says this, if a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, should he return to her again? Would not the land be completely defiled? But you have lived as a prostitute with many lovers. Would you now return to me? declares the Lord. During the reign of King Josiah, and just note that name for a second, King Josiah is a good king. Everything in the land seems to be better. The people are rich. Everybody is happy, at least on the surface. In the, year, in the reign of King Josiah, the Lord said to me, have you seen what faithful Israel has done? She has gone up on every high hill and under every spreading tree and has committed adultery there. I thought that after she had done all this, she would return to me. But she did not, and her unfaithful sister Judah saw it. God says, the people have rejected me in a relationship. They have chosen to go in another direction and have been waiting for them to come back. And they haven't. They haven't. They've stayed away. And now the other nation, Judah, well, they've seen it. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, this is a, so this, we're going to jump to a different prophet for a second because Jeremiah has not created this image. He's borrowed it from somebody else. At the beginning of this book, Hosea, when the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim. Hosea creates this image of God and Israel as people in, in a marriage. And, and now Jeremiah will borrow it. But I'll say it's far worse than he thought. At one point, it seemed like there was a return, a restoration. But, but actually, no, in Jeremiah's words, it's just getting worse. On the surface now, things seem to be good. But underneath... It's as bad as it ever was. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Israel is now captive in Assyria. 
Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. So she went out and committed adultery because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. And we start to see what Jeremiah's getting at. What exactly is it that these people have done that he finds so offensive? It's that they've picked other gods. That this God rescued them, brought them out of Egypt, and now they found other gods, other idols to worship. And this is the crux of his problem. The relationship is broken because of this first Israel, now Judah. And even though in Judah things seem to be okay, in, in Jeremiah's painting of the picture, no, all, all is not okay. All is bad. Israel first, and now Judah have followed. And yet, he throws out this hopeful element in verse 14. Return faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. Still willing to invite them home, still willing to hope for some kind of restoration, still willing to hope that all might be well. He creates this image of young love that's gotten lost along the way, young love where the relationship is broken and then creates the hope that that might be restored at some point in the journey. And then he changes image completely. He goes from talking about marriage, something that we understand, and then moves to another image. He goes from talking about marriage, which is every day, but which we would all acknowledge, I would guess, that we have seen get broken, get messy, become traumatic, involve a splitting of the ways that was just as present then as it might be now, and moves to something else that we can't avoid. Something else that's so visceral, so necessary for human life that, that it gets right to the heart of the issue. He goes from comparing it to marriage to talking about our relationship with water. In an attempt to capture the attention of the people of Judah, Jeremiah turns from the everyday yet comfortable image of marriage to the everyday visceral image of life without water. And that's where I want us to land today. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jeremiah moves from the image of marriage to the image of water. And that's helpful because it's familiar. But in a second, we might see how it might be problematic because it's the same time it's unfamiliar. How many of you would describe yourselves as water people? How many of you would say, I need to be by water every however often, otherwise something in me seems like it starts to go off? How many, show of hands, who have we got in the room? We've got some water people. Some people say that about mountains, some people say that about different parts of the world, but for, for so many people, water is this thing that, that people say, I just need, and I, I just pulled up some images of water just to get us that sense of longing for it. There's just something about the way these images capture what it is to see water poured into a crystal clear glass on a hot day, what it is to be by the ocean and see the rolling waves coming in and just feel the coolness 
cross coming off across the beach. This is a picture of Basson Blue, a place I got to take kids in Haiti. And you can climb up these waterfalls and, and dive into this strangely blue, deep pool of water. There's something about water that is refreshing to me. I, I said to the guys in the first service, I've, I've had these recurring nightmares multiple times over the last couple of months. I'm on vacation in my favorite place on earth, this place, Travon Bay in Cornwall. And in every one of the dreams, it gets to the end of the week and I'm about to go home and I have not been on the beach even though it's within sight, I have not been in the water, even though it's 30 seconds away. And, and I'm sure some psychologist can give me some reason why I'm having those dreams. Come grab me, please, because I clearly need help. Water is a part of my soul. And so when I got to Colorado for the first time visiting, we landed on the plane and I got out of the airport and I looked and it was that season where we couldn't see the mountains because of all the fog. And I looked around at the brown, and the desert, and the landscape, and I said to Laura, where have you brought me? What is this place? And, and as we made a move here, God gave me this verse from Isaiah, something I deeply needed to hear. It's this one in Isaiah 58. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. This is a sun-scorched land, uh, and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. And I was like, yes, that's exactly what I needed to hear, moving to this dry and arid place. It's an image, water, that we get. We understand what it is for things to be dry. We understand what it is to enjoy water, to value it, to need it, to a point. The problem is, it's familiar, yet it's also unfamiliar. It's unfamiliar because most of us here have never really needed water, in the way that some people have at least. How many of you would say at some point consistently in your life, you have turned on the faucet and worried about what will come out? Maybe one person, two in first service, there were two people, I think, maybe three, maybe four. For the most part, we are people that have lived with the privilege of turning on faucets and water appears. We have lived with the privilege of knowing in a worst case scenario, if water becomes available, like in Flint, Michigan, like it has in parts of the South recently in storms, we take bottled water and we instantly begin some kind of fundraiser to ship it all down there so people have water because we think of it as a necessity and as a right. And yet, 700 million people on the planet, twice the population of the United States, don't have clean drinking water. And so their understanding of this image is very different to us. To us, it's an ever-present thing, a right. We may even be so bold as to complain about drinking water in different parts of the country. We might go to someone's house and say, your water is not great here, and yet it's clean, it's fairly good, and yet there's places where you cannot drink with that kind of safety, cannot drink with that kind of presumption. And Israel is one of those places. Israel has these incredible dry seasons that can last for an incredible amount of time. Things like this, springs that bubble up from nowhere, they are not common. If you have a spring, it's a rarity. 
So they live in a different understanding. We are just starting just to get some sense of this with some conversations like this. This is the Colorado River and people have begun to talk about how much water it's producing. When I moved here, another thing I said was, how come all the rivers are so small here? And some wise person said, because they start here and go everywhere else. And we see rivers like this, but they lead to reservoirs that some people are saying, well, they're becoming depleted and suddenly water isn't perhaps as ever-present in our conversation. One comedian uh, said this, the, the Colorado River was at a record low and the towers in Lake Mead stood high out of the water, but the Angelinos committed com communal suicide by watering lawns as usual. Maybe you're someone who says this is a big deal and you've switched to xeriscaping. Maybe some of you say this isn't a big deal and you're continuing as normal and some of us maybe feel we're stuck in the middle and we're like, we just, we don't know, it feels a little scary, a little different maybe than it has in the past. That gives us just the tiniest glimpse of what it is to live in a nation that genuinely has a water shortage. Pope uh, Francis said on visiting a nation in Africa and working with a charity there, thirst does not feel so bad when there's plenty of water to drink. But we know that if it is lacking, and lacking for a long time, thirst can become unbearable. Life on earth depends on water, even the lives of us human beings. Jeremiah creates a picture after talking about marriage and how heartbreaking it is that the marriage between Israel and God is on the rocks. The marriage between Judah and Israel is on the rocks. He moves to an image that every single one of us can understand. Because we can understand that a marriage can get broken, that makes sense to us. We can understand that there might be something that happens to a couple that they end up going their different ways, but we can none of us understand why when presented with a spring of water and a deep thirst, we would ignore it. Why would you move away from something like that? In Israel, that idea is abhorrent. Who has a spring of water presented to them and then leaves it? Who has this that flows and gives life and moves to this? When he describes cisterns that do not hold water, he describes a process where people would dig into the ground. People not presented with this kind of privilege. They would dig in the ground, in the dust of the desert that is Israel in a dry season. And they would take rocks and they would place them on the floor as a basin and try and build something that had no leaks. And then they would take, wait for the rains to come and hope that somewhere those rains created enough water to sustain life. In Jeremiah's illustration, he says, no, you've left a spring of water and you've built something hoping it holds water and it doesn't. There's nothing there. It's empty. Now, in Jeremiah's language, he's not talking about real water. He's talking metaphor because nobody would do this in Israel. As I say, it's, it's, it's abhorrent. Who would do it? It's mind-blowing. It would never happen. Nobody in the history of the world has left a spring of natural water that is good and clean and tried to dig themselves a cistern to hold water that cannot hold water. It hasn't happened. It's not a thing. And yet he takes that image that is abhorrent to everybody and says, your relationship with God is just like that. You are presented with a God who gives life. 
and I've found you disappearing off with these other gods who cannot give life. You've been presented with a God who has rescued you, and now you're off with gods who are not really gods at all. That's the horror to Jeremiah. These people have neglected the spring of life, the God of the universe, and they've gone looking for gods that are not really gods at all. I guess a question for us, knowing that that's what Jeremiah's heartbeat is, is this. What can we learn from that? What message does he hope grips you and I in this Lenten season? Maybe another way to phrase it, as we phrased it last week, is how does this teaching, how is it supposed to cause us to awaken? How does an idea that over 2,000 years ago, a group of people left one God for other gods, how is it supposed to awaken us up? What's the message? How does God speak through this? And perhaps on a human level, the message might be that we as humans, we tend to leave things that are familiar, that are given to us, and we tend to go looking for new things tend to leave what is old, we tend to go looking for the new. There's language that we use all over the place for that. We talk about looking for the grass being greener. It's a water image in and of itself. There's grass that's green and well watered and we tend to metaphorically go looking for that. Maybe we see some of the heartache that that causes. The movie, It's Complicated, represents some of this. There's this moment where Alec Baldwin, the main character, has left his wife and has gone to have an affair with his secretary, who's much, much younger than he is. And there's this moment where he starts to have regrets. Now, if you've been through a marriage that's broken, none of this is supposed to make you feel like guilty or judged, but it's just a reflection of some of the emotion that come into decisions like that. He believed he'd make a, made a decision that was healthy and good, for him and then there's this moment where he looks and sees his adult children sat around the table with their mom enjoying life enjoying conversation and he is spending his time in fertility clinics at 60 years old trying to have another child with his new wife starting to calculate how many years it will be until his next child graduates and recognizing that he'll still be sat in graduation ceremonies at 78 79 80 years old there's this idea that we as humans we chase after things that we think that we want. The playwright Oscar Wilde said this, in this world there are only two tragedies. One is getting, not getting one what once, and, and the other is getting it. The last is much the worst. The last is the real tra- tragedy. There's this idea that we look for things, we chase things that we think will bring happiness, and, and they never bring us as much happiness as we think that they will. Joni Mitchell said, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. There's this idea that that's how we're wired as humans, but I don't know that that's really the core of Jeremiah's message. If you're not sure about following Jesus, that might be a good takeaway. It might be that you would say, no, I'm going to be careful about what I chase, what I think will bring satisfaction. But Jeremiah's message is just a little bit deeper than that. Remember when we read earlier, he said that you, Judah, you've gone and chased wood and stone. It's a piece of language around chasing idols, chasing other gods. We've got to hold that in mind as we read this passage again, because I think that gets us to the heartbeat of it all. Be appalled at this, you heavens. Shudder with great horror. This is the great horror. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. 
These people are presented with everything that they need for spiritual life, for spiritual health, for spiritual sustenance. It is given to them. It is in front of them. And they've chased gods that can never give it. They've chased idols that can never give it. And the true horror is not just that they've done it. The true horror is that they're now thirsty and they're not even aware that they're thirsty. They are dehydrated, dying people who no longer are aware of it. When we talk about dehydration as a principle, as something that actually happens physically, there's these different stages that you go through. The first is the best place to be. You have thirst that is somewhat fulfilled, and, and then you can move to a thirst that is unfulfilled. That's that longing for water. But as you go through the different phases of dehydration, there become moments where you no longer physically feel thirsty. The third stage, you feel you're aware that you're no longer thirsty, but you kind of just don't feel physically like you need to drink water. But this last phase is the most dangerous of all. There's this phase where finally, on the point of death, on the point of complete dehydration, what's called terminal dehydration, you suddenly hit this moment of mild euphoria. Everything's fine. Everything's good. Life will continue. That's where Jeremiah paints these people in Judah in 700 BC. They are people that have been offered water. They have rejected it and dug their own systems that cannot hold water. And now they find themselves on the point of ultimate dehydration. And they're mildly euphoric about it. Everything here is good. Everything here is wonderful. The horror to Jeremiah seems that they are dying, seems to be that they are dying of thirst, sitting by water, they are next to a fountain, and yet they are celebrating life. To them, all is well. There's no need for a change. Remember last week, for those of you that were with us, we talked about this idea, there is a way to live that seems like life but leads to death. That's how Jeremiah paints this spiritual relationship. You are offered relationship with the God of the universe. It is a fountain of living water. You have attempted to dig yourself cisterns, and now you are dying of thirst. It feels to you like life, but it's not life. It's really death. That's the conversation that Jeremiah is having with these people. The challenge for us is that rarely today do we physically think about worshiping idols. We talked about how the people of Israel were told have run after gods like Baal and Molech, these ancient Canaanite gods that may be very unfamiliar to us. Today, we rarely find, even in a church, religious conversation, people that have gone and worshipped Molech or Baal. And yet, what I notice about myself is there are things that grasp at me, things that I am prone to worship, systems that I am prone to dig, that are just like that. There's things that I will think will lead me to satisfaction, and they are often not bad. They're often really good. My desire to chase wealth, my desire to chase fame, identity, significance, my desire to chase a wonderful family, my desire to do all of these different things, they are good things in and of themselves, unless we get to a point of bowing down to them. And what I notice about myself personally is this, I am still prone to ignore fountains of living water, and I am still prone to digging cisterns that cannot hold water. 
I'm just like the people of Jeremiah. Counter to that is this invitation. It's an invitation to thirst represented in Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Jesus himself painted himself as this water. On the final and climatic day of the feast, we read in John chapter 7, Jesus took his stand. He cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Rivers of living water will brim and spill out of the depths of anyone who believes in me this way, just as the scripture says. I recognize that Jesus presents himself to me as this stream of living water, and yet I am inclined to look so many other places to find it. As he will every week during Lent, this is the offer, the gospel presentation that we are given. Ephesians chapter five, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. As he did with the people of Judah and of Israel, the invitation is to stop digging to stop trying to create things that you have made, that you believe will sustain, that you believe will give life. Come to the source of life. Come to the source of life. As we head towards a time of communion, there's some questions that I wanted to offer you. They're what you might call discernment questions. Perhaps you would say, no, there's nothing there on this side that distracts me from that side. And that's good. If that's how you feel, that's good. But here's some questions that may help us figure that out. What has my attention? What has my energy? What has my time? What has my passion? And particularly, I love this one. What has my hopes for the future? What has my hopes for the future? Is it this or this? Are we still people that forsake fountains of living water? Are we still people digging cisterns? Are we people that thirst for the life that only God can give? As we come to this table, we're gonna create some space for you to contemplate those questions. Different to our usual practice, what we'll do is we'll come and we'll take the elements and I'm gonna invite you as you come to take the bread first by yourself. And we're just gonna hover in the space between bread and cup. We're just gonna feel what it is to take the food, the cracker, feel the dryness in the mouth, and just ask, what is my spiritual thirst? Where do I look for fulfillment? Where do I look to see my longings fulfilled? Is it in this? Or is it in this? As Jesus was on the cross, one of his final cries was this, I am thirsty. The God of the universe participated in our human condition so that we could know him as the fountain of living waters. Let's stand together. God, as we as a community try to embrace Jeremiah's tough questions, his hard-hitting imagery, we come to you and take a moment 
and we ask a question. Am I thirsty? By nature as human beings, we all have these deep longings inside us and we know personally for our ways we look to fulfill all of those different longings. There's ways that we invest in career, in family, in identity, in the building of wealth, in physical appearance. And we find them to be cisterns that cannot hold water. They're good things, but they are not the thing that sustains. And so in this Lent season, we choose to reflect. Choose to ask that you would create thirst within us for the fountain that does not run dry. For those of us that would say we are no longer thirsty, would you create that thirst freshly for us? On the screen is a confession. If you'd like to participate, feel free to read along. God of living water, you call us to come and drink, but we do not trust enough that the spring is there. We have sought to find water in our own strength and wisdom, but you call us to come and drink freely. You call us to share the water of life with the world around us, but we believe that the water is limited and saved it for ourselves. For all the times we turned away from your water, for all the times we let others go thirsty instead of offering a drink, forgive us, we pray. Here is good news. The water of life flows with abundance to fill us with hope, to cleanse us of our guilt, to float us to a new life. Washed in the living water, we are forgiven and set free to live abundant life. Thanks and praise to God. Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us by partnering with us. You can give online at southfellowship.org give. And thanks for listening. We hope you have a great rest of your day.